Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. I have been given the opportunity to cover the 24th annual Fantasia Film Festival. For the first time this year, this genre fest will take place virtually from August 20th to September 2nd and will showcase an eclectic mix of flicks, many from upcoming filmmakers all around the world. Obviously, this is a festival that is normally attended in person. However, due to COVID-19, they have gone digital, which unfortunately means the event is geolocked to Canada only. This means the only way to watch the movies is if you are a resident of Canada. However, that shouldn't stop you from making a watch list. If you're like your favorite little gravedigger, you always have a running list of movies you want to see. So make sure to check out moviejohn.com, where I will be posting my reviews of the flicks I check out at Fantasia. There you will find coverage from other movie genres, such as my partner in crime, Benjamin Leonard, and MJ's dynamic duo, Hunter Bush and Allison Yakalis, who are co-hosts of the podcast Hate Watch, Great Watch. So make sure to check it out. Come on, Eddie. Also, goblins and ghouls, I am still seeking pen pals. The post office has sent out a distress call, and we need to send more mail. So if you are interested in penning your favorite little gravedigger, drop me a line at P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA, 19145, attention, Rosalie kicks. I always write back, and who knows what type of surprises you shall find in your mailbox. Well, hello, my friend. How do you do? We hope you have a moment or two to listen to what we have to say to each and every one of you. It concerns our postal system. Our lifetime friends, as all of you know, they've never failed us through the years, through driving rain, sleet or snow. But now they've got a problem. And what are they to do? The answer, my friend, is very... 
simple, it's up to you to see them through. Do, 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 do. And now our feature presentation. All right, film pals, time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. As you recall from the last episode, my fellow crypt dwellers, I had originally planned to uncover the corpse of Carol Landis to dissect the 1941 noir, I Wake Up Screaming. Well, goblins and ghouls, after watching the film, I realized that the true star of this movie is Betty Grable. Carol's role in this particular movie is minimal, and so I have decided to revisit her grave in a future crypt episode, and instead did a little corpse swapping, if you will. For this episode, I have decided to dig up the cadaver of Betty Grable, as the movie features one of her few dramatic roles. When I used to be a little kid, I used to go Every Saturday afternoon to the picture show Close up to the screen, my life was so serene Lived through every scene with my movie queen Betty Grable the song you just heard was performed and written by Neil Sadaka. Betty was born December 18, 1916, Elizabeth Ruth Grable, and she would come to go by the name Betty and was given nicknames such as The Girl with the Million Dollar Legs, The Pinup Girl, America's Ideal Girl, and The Quicksilver Blonde. At a young age, Betty took up tap dancing and ballet lessons. As a young teenager, she and her mother packed up and headed west to Hollywood, leaving their Midwestern life in St. Louis, Missouri behind. After Betty's mother Lillian lied about her age, saying that her daughter was 15, when in fact she was only 13, Betty scored her first role in a picture in the 1929 flick Happy Days as a chorus girl. She would go on to appear uncredited in other films throughout the early 30s, along with a numerous amount of short flicks. By the time she made H. Bruce Humberstone's I Wake Up Screaming, she had had several feature-length pictures under her belt. Despite her life being cut short on July 2nd, 1973, dying at the age of 56 after a battle with lung cancer, Betty managed to rack up 85 film credits to her name. She was known for her platinum blonde hair, blue eyes, voluptuous figure, and of course, her sexy gams. In the late 1940s, 20th Century Fox even had that pair of legs insured with Lloyds of London for a quarter of a million dollars. Grable's success as a pinup girl helped further her career in film, 
an iconic 1943 poster taken by Frank Pavolny, in which she posed in a bathing suit with an over-the-shoulder pose due to the fact that she was visibly pregnant. It ended up being a bestseller, especially amongst those stationed overseas during World War II. In conducting my research on Betty, something I found rather fascinating, which relates to a previous crypt episode, episode three, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Well, apparently Betty, she too was a somnambulist, or better known as sleepwalker, and suffered from demophobia, which meant she had a fear of large crowds. Coincidentally, in 1932, she appeared in a short film called The Flirty Sleepwalker. I tried to find more about that flick, but couldn't uncover much except for the title. Speaking of titles, I Wake Up Screaming was first entitled Hot Spot. Promotional items such as posters and lobby cards were designed with this title by the studio. It inevitably dropped, though, before the release in favor of the title I Wake Up Screaming. Hotspot, apparently, was to refer to the hot spot someone could find themselves in when they go to the electric chair. How pleasant. I Wake Up Screaming is essentially textbook noir. The low angles, the dark shadowy corners, Venetian blinds, and low-lit close-ups. Even with all this, it often is dismissed, as it was released the same year as a more well-known hit, The Maltese Falcon. Extra, extra, read all about it! The film opens with a child selling newspapers. Headline reads, Lady Dead. A film that opens with a corpse. I couldn't have been more pleased. We cut to a police office. An interrogation is taking place. They are questioning a man, Frankie Christopher, played by Victor Mature. He informs the detectives of the moment he met the deceased, Vicky Lynn. It was a diner, and she was waitressing, and he and his pals, Robin Ray, an ex-actor, and Larry Evans, a gossip columnist, got to talking. But I doubt if even you, Maestro, could make a lady out of a hash slinger. Uh, put her in the right clothes, take her to the right places with the right people, and she can get by anywhere. It might be fun trying, even if it didn't work. Here she comes now, Frankie. Pour on the charm. That's right. On a whim, Frankie Christopher, who works as a sports promoter, decided to accept the dare to turn this waitress, Vicky Lynn, played by Carol Landis, into a star. Despite Carol's role being somewhat small, she makes the most of it. I absolutely adored her snarkiness and bluntness. When Frankie Christopher takes his experiment out to a swanky club, no one can keep their eyes off his lady pal. It doesn't take long for her to be invited to eat dinner with some rather high society people. Another person being questioned at the police station is Vicki Lynn's sister Jill, played by the corpse of interest, Betty Grable. Vicki Lynn and Jill shared an apartment together. Jill had hesitations about Vicki's newfound friends. She works as a secretary and wishes that her sister would just play it safe, rather than getting tied up in some shady racket with a bunch of sleaze merchants. Vicki Lynn had other plans, though. Jill! Jill, what do you think? I've done it! I'm a success! Say, what is all this? 
You know what happened? Lady Handel invited me over to her table. I met all the big shots. I danced with all the good-looking young men. I've just got dozens and dozens of invitations. Invitations to do what? I'm never going back to that rotten old restaurant job. What? Why should I? Now I realize I've been wasting my time. I can be somebody. Vicky, you're not serious about giving up your job. Of course. Why should I go on slinging hash when I can sling other things? Vicky Lynn, have you gone right out of your mind? At one point during the interrogation, Jill states, one day on a magazine cover, next, an ash can. She couldn't have been so right. This film is rather interesting in the way it is told because essentially, much like the characters, we, the audience, are trying to figure out the crime as well. Who killed Vicki Lynn? Scenes are intercut with past memories to guide the story and investigation. Grable does well in this role, and it was a unique opportunity for her as she often took parts in musicals and movies with dance numbers. Something to note, my little crypt dwellers, is that this was the first film noir produced by 20th Century Fox and was originally a novel by the same name by Steve Fisher, who helped co-write the script with Dwight Taylor. Okay, now where were we? Oh yes, Hollywood. Oh, darling, something terrible has happened. I, I don't quite know how to tell you, it's so embarrassing, but... Of course, I realize everything you've done for me, but, well, life is so uncertain nowadays, isn't it? Get to the point. Well, I... I'm going away. Away? Where? I couldn't help it, really, I couldn't. I just happened to run into this man, and it's purely business, you understand. Where are you going? To Hollywood. Hollywood? After a rather whirlwind success, Vicki Lynn manages to land a screen test and informs her sister Jill that she will be leaving tomorrow night for La La Land to pursue her dream of becoming a star. When Vicki Lynn breaks the news to Frankie Christopher, he isn't just hurt, he feels betrayed. Frankly, men can truly make themselves look ridiculous. Like, what did he expect? Her to just stay around forever being his puppet? There is a scene in which Frankie and his two pals, the ex-actor and columnist, are sitting at a bar, whining and crying into their drinks about Vicky Lynn leaving. I found this scene to be rather humorous, just a gaggle of babies getting sloshed. After all, you did take me out of the restaurant, introduce me to the right people and all that sort of thing, but, well, I have some brains too. It was me they were interested in. Some people think I'm a very attractive girl. You didn't create that. I'm no Frankenstein, you know. I wonder. Come in. Unfortunately, Vicki Lynn doesn't make it to Hollywood. The next day, when Jill arrives home, she finds her sister dead, with Frankie Christopher standing over the corpse. Hence, why everyone is being questioned. It is during the questioning that Jill remembers something curious, though. She does not believe Frankie would have killed Vicky Lynn. She recalls Vicky having an admirer of sorts, someone showing up at the diner when she would finish her shifts at night. Vicky. 
you seem to have an admirer. There was some guy looking through the window at you like the wolf looked at the three little pigs. I'm used to that. With that plate glass window, I've got about as much privacy as a lingerie mannequin. It doesn't mean a thing. Of course, the fedoras and suspenders, you know, the police, question her story, provoking her to slap one of them when they state that the only reason she is bringing this tidbit of information up is because she herself is in love with Frankie Christopher. Jill then spots the creeping man, the secret admirer, through the glass, and he enters the room. All right, young lady. Here's the head man. That's him. That's the man. What's this? She's crazy. She said she saw a mysterious stranger peeking through the window of the joint where her sister worked. Now she says it's Ed. What about it, Ed? Do you peek through windows? Sure, when it happens to be my district. That's my job, Miss Lynn, to look at people. Laird Crager plays the towering inspector Ed Cornell. I absolutely love his voice. It is so soothing. I believe I shall feature him on a future episode of The Crypt, Goblins and Ghouls, as I uncovered he was from Philadelphia, which is where your favorite little gravedigger rests her head. I recently saw Laird in a wonderful picture, Heaven Can Wait, in which he plays His Excellency, Satan. He was quite fantastic in that, and I was shocked to learn that he only made 16 films as he died at the young age of 30. Don't fret, Laird, dearie. You shall be woken up soon for a chat. Mwah. Through Jill's interrogation, though, we do learn that there may be some truth to her feelings for Frankie Christopher. The night before Vicki Lynn's death, Frankie picked up the two ladies, and the three of them went for a drive. During their adventure, Vicki Lynn proclaims that Jill will be happy to see her go, stating that Jill is in love with Frankie, so this will be her chance to make her move. She said to Christopher, you'll be glad to get rid of me, is that it? Word for word? Yes. But she didn't mean anything like that. What she meant, we'll never know. It's what she said that counts. Now tell us how and when you found the body. Well, it was about 5.30 in the afternoon. I'd gotten away early from the office. Even as I came out of the elevator, I, I had a feeling that something was wrong. I don't know quite how to explain it, but there was music coming from the apartment and... Speaking of dead bodies, it is now time to take our trip to the morgue, my little crypt dwellers. Join me for this spooky intermission of sorts as we venture to the morgue to chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Elisha Cook Jr., who plays Harry Williams in I Wake Up Screaming. Elisha was an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the mark. Let's all go to the mark. Let's all go to the mark to get ourselves a corpse. I bid you welcome to the morgue, old sport. Can I interest you in a nightcap? I thought that a nice stiff drink could help calm the nerves and put us in the right frame of mind. Naturally, of course, Dr. Carruthers. 
cocktails, cadavers, and conversation in the pale moonlight, is there anything more splendid? Well, chap, who do you have on the slab tonight? Well, you are in for a special treat, because I have uncovered a fine character specimen for tonight's chat, the pint-sized character corpse of Elisha Cook Jr. Hello, Harry. Hello, Miss Lynn. I thought you'd gone away. I just went over to Brooklyn to see my parents. I didn't realize it would cause such a fuss. I explained everything to the cops. Oh, I, I thought... Well, you, you shouldn't have thought that, Miss Lynn. You, you, you know I wouldn't do a thing like that, don't you? Yes. I'm moving. I, I've come for Vicky's things. Yes, I know. The superintendent told me you were coming. I have everything here. All packed and ready to go. Hello. Oh, just a minute. It's Mr. Christopher. He wants to speak to you. Tell him I'm not in. I've gone away. She's not in. She's gone away. Well, where's she gone? He wants to know where you've gone. Just tell him there's no forwarding address. Sorry, there's no forwarding address. Was the funeral nice? It was very quiet. There wasn't anybody there except me. I wanted to come. Why didn't you? I didn't think it was my place. Ooh, yes. That guy was practically in a zillion things. Yes. Actually, 218 credits to his name, to be exact. Well, let's not waste any time, then. I want to slice him open. Why, yes. Scalpel, please. We shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, his small stature. Number two, his intense, scared look. Number three, his rascally ways. Number four, his villainous yet cowardly portrayals. And number five, his timid disposition. And something I really respect about Cook is that his goal was never to be a big star or a leading man type, but he just wanted to work on movies, and I love that. It kind of reminds me of someone who wants to play rhythm guitar in a band. They're not looking to be the flashy star, but they add a certain quality that folks would miss if they weren't there. That's my kind of person. And I think it was this fact that led Cook to be able to be involved in such a wide range of movies. I, I think that his filmography has to be the most varied that we've discussed together so far. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I love your description of the rhythm guitarist in the band, because you're so right. If Elisha wasn't in the movie, it would be missing something. Mm -hmm. So I really like that. And he has been in so many different types of productions, I found, from film to TV, which isn't a huge surprise because I did see that he lived until 91 years old. Mm. And it seemed unlike most of the other corpses that we have dissected here. He actually, you know, he died of a stroke, so more or less of natural causes, on May 18th of 1995 in a nursing home. And 
I found this to be kind of interesting because similar to with Olivia de Havilland recently passing, like she was the last cast member from Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. He was the last cast member from The Maltese Falcon. Oh, that's interesting. So what are some of your favorite films that he was in? Well, when I think of him, the first movie that pops into my head was when he is the floating head at the start of House on Haunted Hill. Oh my god. It just starts with the black screen and then his head pops up, but not like his neck or torso, just a head. And he plays a very earnest head. So I haven't seen this yet. I, I know. This makes me like want to watch it immediately. It's fun. You'll yeah. like it. You'll like it. Many folks would probably recognize him from his roles as playing the classic fall guys in great classic noirs like The Killing, The Big Sleep, and as you said, The Maltese Falcon. Yeah, I love The Big Sleep, and I think when I was spying on your letterbox, you recently watched it. Mm -hmm. I really like that one, and I also love him in The Killing of mm -hmm. Corpse. And I feel like you just never know, though, where Elisha's going to pop up. Like, he's kind of like the Where's Waldo of Filmland <laughs> to me. Because just the other night, Ben and I, my partner in crime, were watching a Barbara Stanwyck movie on TCM, Ball of Fire. And I have seen the movie, I would say, countless times before. But ta-da, like, because we were talking about him... He showed up and he was slinging cocktails in this swanky nightclub. He doesn't have a lot of lines or anything, but I never noticed him before. Again, he does leave an impression on you, even though he's in it for like a snippet. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I've seen that movie and I, I can't remember him in it, but it's true. He just kind of shows up in so many things. He was also in that movie, The Haunted Palace, which contains my, has to be my favorite comedy scene of cinematic crypt alum Vincent Price nonchalantly flicking a lit match on a man. And I naturally just went back and learned that yes, it is indeed Elisha Cook Jr. And that scene alone is worth the price of admission. And it's definitely a scene that you have revisited because I actually have video footage that you sent to me of you cackling as you were watching it. Well, it's dazzling. It's dazzling. So I love, though, how in the film I wake up screaming. You know, the moment he shows up, my immediate thought was he totally killed that Vicky Lindrod. I, his role as Harry Williams, I guess he's like a phone operator is how, you know, they title him or a desk clerk. It's, again, rather minor, but it sticks with you because he had that knack for playing characters, in my opinion, such an unsettling manner. And I imagined this guy, like, after he, because he actually was the one who, I think, found the corpse, mm -hmm. but he probably kept, like, a hair clipping from her. <laughs> he always plays such, as you said, rascally guy. So do you think in his desk he had like a little collection of hair clippings? Yes, of like the different uh, people staying in that apartment building. Like I could imagine he probably was like creeping around when they weren't home. 
peeping little things. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. And I loved when we first met him in that film. We could really see his strong work ethic at play here. He's sitting back, legs crossed on the desk. He is not in a hurry to do anything, really. Yeah, it it was quite awesome to me. Yeah. <laughs> I really like how we first meet him clearly he's a star employee Mm -hmm. not sure if you came across this but when i was reading you know again he lived a rather long life but he apparently moved out to like the outskirts of california so kind of far from hollywood and he didn't have an agent but was always open to work if someone took the trouble to track him down. And I think that is so cool. Oh, that's really interesting. So it's just like, if you can find me, yeah, I'll probably be in your movie. Exactly. (laughs) I love it. You know, something else I find interesting about his roles is that he's often murdered and in many different ways. And I heard an interview actually where he commented himself that he's been killed in every possible manner. How many times did you die in pictures? Oh, at least 50 or 100 maybe. I don't know. I can't tell exactly. At least that many. Do you hold the record? I could very easily. Very easily I could. Because I've been killed in every shape and form there is. You you can't name it that I've been killed that way. Whether I'm drowning or, you know, going in a tank or knives, pistols, machine guns, any of that stuff, you know. Fed to the lions, same thing. How many uh, slaps did you get? I mean, how many what? How many times did you get slapped in picture? Oh God, I don't know. I get punched around all the time. It's <laughs> <That was> awful. <laughs> Why do you yeah. think you got these kind of parts all the time? I really don't know. You know, I think, uh, of course, I think John Houston had a lot to do with it when I did Maltese Falcon for him. You know, when I played the Sydney uh, Green Streets uh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a fun show. But I think he started a lot of it. That's when they really shot me with a bulletproof vest. What? Could you explain this? That bullet, bulletproof vest. They shot at it. A real one. You mean you got shot with yeah, a real with, bullet? Yeah, with a real bullet with a bulletproof vest. What, why do you think they did that? I mean, why didn't they use I think they're nuts, but they did it. <laughs> so later I said, let's forget that. Because about my third film, I got this thumb cut off, making a picture at Fox with John Ford. Right? How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Uh, we're supposed to be on board a great big sub chaser, you know, in the Adriatic, and the you know, and we're come. We've done everything. We won every medal there was. So anyway, I'm up on the cat on the poop deck on the bridge, and we're in a big storm scene. And what they did that they had thousands of tons of water, and they just cut it loose like that, you know. And so I'm up on the bridge. Sure enough, they go. Here comes the water. Here I go, off the deck, down, and I grab, try to catch myself, and a piano wire caught it and cut my thumb off. And so Mr. Ford came up to me and said, geez, that was a hell of a shot, Cookie. I said, yeah, it sure was, Mr. Ford. I just cut my thumb off and he passed out. <laughs> and I got to say, being forced to drink poison, while classic, it is still not as cool as being attacked by a vampire. This guy has seen it all. He really has, because when I was thinking back just now, like poison, strangulations, He really has experienced the many options that death has to offer. And don't forget, he also partook in satanic worship. Because I absolutely adore him as the totally normie apartment manager, Mr. Nicholas, in Rosemary's Baby, 
The scene where he's showing Rosemary and Guy Woodhouse the apartment is classic to me. And he really had this way, again, I can't say it enough, but like just taking these tiny parts and making them so memorable. Oh, it's a wonderful apartment. I love it. See what she's trying to do? She's trying to get you lower the rents. <laughs> yes. Well, we'd raise it if we were allowed. Apartments with this kind of charm. There's a closet behind that secretary. I'm, I'm sure there is. Yeah, oh, I think you're right. Yeah, I agree. I actually forgot, again, that he was in that. And then, yeah, absolutely. Now I can picture it. Yeah, and then it. Guy like does the whole like imitation of him afterwards. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Oh. He's everywhere. I do have an interesting note. Okay. Though, regarding corpses. Do you want to hear it? Of course. Well, did you know that Elisha plays a morgue worker in the classic black exploitation vampire flick, Blackula? Have you seen that? I have not seen that. Uh, but again, it's another one that I've been wanting to watch. One of our fellow movie genres, Mr. Clink. He is a fan. Oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, that movie. And in his last moments in that film, he rolls out a corpse. And unfortunately, his fatal flaw, he leaves it unattended to answer the phone. And well, let's just say that does not go well for him. No. But that being said, I, I'd like to believe that he is comfy here, tucked in safely. I agree. So I think it's time to grab the blankie. Let's tuck him in. Good night, Elisha. Sleep tight. Good night. And now, on with the show. Welcome back, my goblins and ghouls. I hope you enjoyed the trip to the morgue. We return to our story of Vicki Lynn. The pesky, obsessive investigator Ed Cornell continues to come down hard on Frankie Christopher, insisting that he was the one who committed murder due to Vicki leaving him for Hollywood. This causes Frankie to have to do much of the investigating, determined to prove his innocence, convinced that it was Harry Williams, the apartment switchboard operator who killed Vicki Lynn. Cornell doesn't lay off, though, constantly tailing Frankie wherever he goes. Well, if it isn't Operator 13. The nails for your coffin. Hi, Inspector. How about giving me a lift uptown, Frankie? Sure. Always glad to oblige a ghoul. Right this way. You can drop me at 58th and Madison. I live on the corner. Okay. I'm sorry to have to ask you to do this, but I'm a little short on cash lately. You see, I've spent so much of my own dough trying to build up this case against you. Well, if there's anything you need, just let me know. Well, I imagine they'll make it right with me when I bring in the material for your trial. They usually do in these cases. I nick a guy on my own time and send him up to the chair. Then I get back pay. Must be a great life. Like a garbage man, only with people. I got practically all the evidence I need now. 
I could arrest you today for that matter, but you might get some smart mouthpiece and get off with life instead of the chair. I won't be satisfied until I'm sure it's the chair. You're a gay dog, Cornell. You make me feel as if I'm driving a hearse. Well, I know you're a type. I've seen hundreds of them. I don't scare you enough to make you commit suicide, but I worry you just the same. That driving scene was one of my favorite parts of the movie. I loved the dialogue and the banter back and forth. It was just so great. This scene ends in one of the best possible ways, too, with Ed leaving a tiny noose on the seat of Frankie's car. A noose that he made from a piece of string while they were driving. After Ed is dropped off, he uncovers the address of where Jill has moved. After the murder, Jill decided to find a new apartment, for obvious reasons. Ed grills her for answers, proclaiming that she is madly in love with Frankie Christopher. When Ed leaves the apartment, she removes a letter from behind a painting. A letter from Frankie Christopher to Vicky. Jill decides to reach out to Frankie for a night out in the town. And, well, to do some investigating of her own, of course. Scrap the stuff about the Japanese spy with the Kodak and run this. What sister of what recently murdered girl is stepping out with the dead girl's boyfriend? Dancing on the grave, I call it. The murderer has yet to be found. You dance well. Vicky said I was terrible. Well, dancing sort of depends. Yes, I, I know. They have an interesting night at a boxing match and then an indoor community swimming pool, which I found rather intriguing. After the night's festivities, she invites Frankie back to her place. She decides to show him the letter she was holding on to, convinced that Frankie could not have killed Vicky Lynn. Unfortunately, they are not alone. The investigator is there, lurking in the shadows once more. I'd like to have a look at that letter, if you don't mind. Dear Vicky, after what you did last night, the sooner you're out of the way, the better. Nice of you to put in writing. All right, Murphy, you wait in the hall. I knew you were holding something back. You're the Mona Lisa type. I can spot him a mile away. This inevitably leads to a wild, almost comical scene in which Jill assists Frankie escape the authorities by misleading the cops by having her Murphy bed to fall atop of a bumbling officer who just so happens to be named Murphy. For those not familiar, a Murphy bed is designed with a spring mechanism so that it can be stored in an upright position. This gives a tiny apartment more space when the bed is not in use. Just some alien technology stuff. After Frankie escapes, Jill ends up meeting up with him shortly thereafter, and she helps him saw off his handcuffs. They hide out in what my opinion is the perfect place to lay low. The movie theater, of course. And they watch the 1922 flick, Flames of Passion. In thinking the coast is clear, they decide to split up. Frankie is on the run, a warrant out for his arrest, and Jill hides in the public library, only quickly to be discovered and arrested. The police are hoping the capture of Jill will lead Frankie right into their hands, like a moth to a flame. Frankie has other plans, though, and happens to walk right up to the investigator. 
The thing about a big city is, it is often like a small town, and you never know who you're going to bump into. Hello, Frankie. Carrying a gun? Who can tell? It may be a gun or it may be a pipe. Then again, it may be just my finger. But you're not taking any chances, are you? No, I don't have to. What's on your mind, Frankie? You've taken Jill. She hasn't got anything to do with this. Let her go and I'll give myself up. You've turned into quite the young Lockenbar, haven't you? Self-sacrifice and everything. Well, it's no use, Frankie. I don't have to make bargains with you. I'll get you eventually. If not tomorrow, next week. If not next week, next year. Time's nothing in my life. It is in yours. Each minute's an eternity to a man in your shoes. At the wrong steer this time, Cornell. They told me at headquarters that you're a pretty sure thing. But this time you're trying to convict an innocent man. That's what you say. But you can't sell me on it. I'll follow you into your grave. I'll write my name on your tombstone. Eventually, they let Jill out. And she does some investigating of her own again, which takes her to a florist. And then to a graveyard, where she learns that flowers are being sent to her sister's grave every day since she has died. Crypt dwellers... I loved this scene, when she and Frankie pay a visit to the gravedigger. Oh, just listen. Good evening. I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm from the Evening Ledger. They sent me out here on an assignment. May I come in? Sure, sure. Come in. You know, I'm glad to see anybody that's still moving around. Well, what can I do for you? Through this trip, they learn that the flowers are being sent by Frankie's columnist friend. So Frankie pays him a visit. Another suspect. Unfortunately for Frankie, this doesn't pan out. Which leaves only one person. That's right, Harry Williams. In a desperate act, Frankie contacts the police, asking for them to hear him out. He calls Jill, and together they hope to solve the crime once and for all. Jill contacts Harry Williams, pretending to be the ghost of Vicki Lynn. Elisha's reaction in this scene is gold. So, I could tell you who actually committed this crime, but goblins and ghouls, I really think you should find out for yourself by watching the flick. Just know this, still remaining within this story is poison and, of course, a Hollywood magical marriage ending. I leave you with two tidbits of information that were just too bizarre not to share. Before shooting, I wake up screaming. A bottle of silver nitrate was accidentally spilled on Carol Landis's lips by her dentist. This caused her lips to turn blue for about three weeks, which posed a most excellent challenge for the makeup crew. Lastly, be forewarned, if you are not a fan of the hit song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, you best buckle up before watching I Wake Up Screaming. It is featured in this flick more times than I can count, in various iterations, and it is truly puzzling, as it really doesn't work for this movie. I guess someone was a fan, though.
hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in checking out this movie, it is available for free on archive.org. I will once again post a link on the Cinematic Crypt page. Just visit moviejohn.com and click on Cinematic Crypt under MJ Pods. In my next episode, I will pry open the coffin of Carol Landis, for real this time, to dissect and I examine the 1940 Hal Roach flick, Turnabout. I first saw this movie on Turner Classic Movies, and with some sleuthing, was able to track it down on the fascinating wild world of the internets. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on air. Take note, goblins and ghouls. A raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. Mwah! So log into iTunes to leave your own review or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at Cinematic Crypt. Don't forget to visit moviejohn.com shop to subscribe to the movie zine that I create quarterly with my film pals. Our summer print issue is shipping now and features writing and artwork of circus, carnival, and state fair movies. Step right up and witness this spectacular print magazine, available for home delivery at moviejohn.com shop. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also, thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmuji, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw It In A Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, Ryan Silverstein. This weekly podcast features a rotation of Movie John pals to serve as experts to answer all of your burning questions. No question is too silly. Maybe you're wondering where to start in silent film watching, or what to do with that creepy doll that is hiding out in your attic. Ask away by contacting us on Twitter at I Saw It In A Movie, or email us at dear I Saw It In A Movie at gmail.com. Or if you're old-fashioned, like your favorite little gravedigger, you can contact us via snail mail at Attention Movie John, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. And again, all of this information is available on our website as well, moviejohn.com under MJ Pods. Can't wait to hear from you, old sport. And remember, for every question, there is a movie with the answer. A new episode is available every Monday. Wish me luck as you wave me goodbye. Cheerio, here I go on my way. Wish me luck as you wave me goodbye.
with a cheer, not a tear, make it gay. Give me a smile, I can keep all the while in my heart while I'm away. Till we meet once again, you and I wish me luck. As you wave me goodbye. Well, my little crypt dwellers, it is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, Compliments of Ed Cornell. Some scream, a few faint, some light a cigarette and try a wisecrack. This is the typical reaction one has when visiting my grave, and I decide to drop by for a nice, friendly chat. Remember, goblins and ghouls, death is only the beginning. Goodbye, film pals.